Galatians chapter 1, and we will begin reading in verse 1. When you got it, say so. And it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I am still, if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord God, that is truth. We thank you because you set us free, Lord God. We thank you because you enable us, my Lord, to worship you. You enable us, Lord God, to seek you. And God, we are so grateful today of your amazing grace. I thank you, Father God, because you alone are holy, righteous, and worthy. Today I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church. And I pray that you would help me, Lord God, to convey these truths, Lord God, under your people. May we be built and edified through your word, Lord. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, someone said, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Today, I would like to begin a new series, and the series is entitled Gospel-Centered. Gospel-Centered is the series title, and I will probably preach for about four weeks, five weeks maybe, concerning this. And what I want to deal with today is a title, of the, or the message is entitled, Keeping Things in Order. Keeping Things in Order is very vital to us as the body of Christ, as part of the body of Christ, and as a church specifically in the city of Oviedo. In order for us to be considered faithful by the Lord, we must be good stewards of all that God has given us, beginning with the mystery of the gospel. And so one thing that we need to realize as Christians, look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, I'm not sure if you knew this, but you own nothing. You are simply a steward, a steward. Now look at your other neighbor. Say, you heard that? In our day and age, we all feel like we own stuff and we're entitled to stuff and all that is good stuff. But listen, the truth of the matter is we are stewards and that is it. We are those who have been entrusted with things, be it our home, be it our car, be it our children. You think, well, man, especially the women in here, I carried them for nine months and, and you're saying they ain't mine. Nope, they're just, you're just a steward over them. Amen. I know, I know it's rough, but the facts are the facts. 
God is the owner of all things. And what he does is he allows us, and I say it like this, he allows us to enjoy his creation. And while we're here, he'll say, okay, that's yours. But when you die, you'll find out how quick nothing is yours. Hello. When you die, you, you won't find out. Everybody around you will find out how quick stuff ain't yours. Hello. Because you're going to be in heaven in glory, hopefully. Glory to God. You know, some of us will be there. Some of us will not make it. Sorry. But the facts are the facts. And so we will die and we don't take anything with us. And why is that? Because we own nothing. We do not own anything. We are stewards. And in order for us to be faithful as a church, here's my heart. My heart is that we have to be found faithful as individual people who are part of a collective body. We have to be found faithful as individuals for our relationship with Jesus. We have to make sure that we are walking according to what the scriptures teach, that we are living according to what the Bible instructs, that we are walking with God the way we're supposed to as individuals. And as we do that, we also as a church body need to be found faithful before God because we are going to be rewarded based on the, 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 the works that we do and that is part of our faithfulness. But we've been given this, these things that we have and we have to be found faithful. The Apostle Paul communicates that he, is, that, that he is simply a steward. And so for us as a church, what is our goal as a church? I mean, overall we know, and hopefully you know this, if you've been through the vision carrier orientation, which for those of you that are new or visiting, that is our membership class, okay? And so if you've been through the vision carrier orientation, hopefully you got the heart of God for Faith Doma Fellowship and what I believe to be for, the, for any part of the body of Christ. And that is the vision that every Christian should have. And it is that you should desire above everything else to please God. The focus in every area of your life is one aim, one mark, one desire, one purpose. And it is to keep you solely focused on not pleasing him, her, them, or we, but to please him in all things. That is the vision of Faith Doma Fellowship. And it is my prayer that our hearts are turned more and more to God, more and more for God every day as we continue to seek him out and search out the truths of his word. But as a mission of a church, see, our vision is simple. It is to please him. That's it. Bottom line, we want to please God. But our mission, how do we live that out? And that is found in the mission. Pastor Robert gets up here. He says it every week. We are committed to loving God, committed to growing together, committed to reaching others, committed to serving. What is that all about? If he were to sum it up in one word, we are committed, or, or into one sentence, I would say, we are committed to being disciples. That's it. And if you, if I am really committed to being a disciple, that means that I am committed to making disciples. Amen, somebody. I'm not, it's not all about me. When I'm committed to Jesus as a disciple, it is not about me. It's not about my satisfaction, my gratification, about how I feel, about what I want. It is about Jesus, plain and simply, and bringing him glory. And if we are going to be faithful as a disciple-making church, what is supposed to happen? What is supposed to happen is we are supposed to produce fruit. We are supposed to produce fruit. And I want to be very clear with this. Look around. Look look around. You see there's some empty chairs around you, right? Good. Those, that, that means that there's a lot of opportunity for you to bring people to Jesus and you got a place for them to sit. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Don't get intimidated because we're not packed out and numbers aren't rolling all over the place. Here's the bottom line. This is, this is something that I want you to realize. In this place, we have what Jesus, what Jesus talked about. We're supposed to bear good fruit. Say good fruit. 
We have good fruit, right? But here's the thing. We've got to get from the place of good fruit to more fruit. Because you know what happens to good fruit when it sits around? I love it. It rots, gets bad. And what do you do with it? Throw it away. So you can be good fruit that's rotting. Jesus, hallelujah. That was free, hallelujah. You can be good. And you know what's what's funny about fruit that's rotting? On the outside, you don't see it. You know where it's seen? And the part where it's sitting down. On the part where it's resting. That's the part. You see, and, and so this is what happens. You walk around, we see all the goodness of you. We see, we see all the goodness of you, but we don't see the rotting part. And sometimes you will ignore the rotting part because you're like, hey, all this other stuff is okay. Not realizing that that rotting part is eating out inside. Hello. It is causing everything to be to, 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 to rot and to become worthless in the use that God wants us to be for. And so what does that mean for us as a church? Remember, not just as individuals because we miss it. When we talk about discipleship, when we talk about being disciples, we think, well, you know what? It's just about me and Jesus, right? That's all it's about. I mean, we have conversation with people. I've had tons of conversation with people who they say they love Jesus, but they don't attend a church. Really? So you love him, but you don't love him. You say you love the head, but you don't love his body. I want you to realize this. I didn't make this up. I, 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 didn't, I didn't make it up. I didn't, I didn't just come out of somewhere and say, hey, man, we have to go to church. That isn't what happened. Somebody didn't decide one day, you know what? We're going to get rich off of tithes and offerings. That would have been the worst plan ever. Hello, somebody. Let me, let, me, let me just make that crystal clear. Worst plan ever. We're going to get rich off of people's giving. Never going to happen, glory to God. Not going to happen. Jesus Christ himself establishes this body. And the reason why this is important is because we need to realize why. We need each other because he is the head. I want, I want to make this crystal clear. If I've ever said this, and, and, and you know what? I will say, I'm going to say I probably have said this. I've always been very reluctant to say this. But if I've said this, I want to apologize for you if I've ever communicated it to you. I am not the head of this church. Did you hear me? I do not own this church. This church is not my church. Jesus Christ is always and will always be the head of this church if it is a biblical church. Understand that. Jesus is the apostle. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the chief. He is the one who is leading this church. How does he lead this church? He leads it through the word of God. How does he lead this church? He leads it through the elders and the leadership. And he has called me to be a leader in the church, but not the only leader of the church. Understand something. Jesus says we are the body. We are his body. Therefore, him being the head, he flows through you. He flows through you. He flows through everybody in here in different ways. The Bible calls those gifts. He manifests himself for what? So that way we can become the disciples he's called us to be. And so you're not going to get every single thing you need just from hearing me preach on Sunday. Hello, somebody. Let me say it again. You are not going to get everything you need spiritually to grow in your character and all of these things just by hearing me preach on Sunday. Listen, I think by the grace of God, I'm a decent preacher. Hello, somebody. 
Now, I'm, I'm not going to border on false humility. I think that when the Holy Ghost gets on me, it's some real glory to God. I get excited. The Lord will speak. I, that's all him, and I give him all praise and all glory. But that's still not going to be enough for you to grow in Christ the way you're supposed to. You're going to need the love of somebody who don't even preach. You're going to need the encouragement of someone who never gets up here. You may need the prophetic utterance of someone into your life that you never see get up on a pulpit. You may need someone who's going to come with that healing power into your life that never gets up here. But you know what? You'll never find that if you don't connect with the body of Christ. If you don't connect with the people of God. And you know what the beauty of this is? When you look in the mirror, you know what you should see? You should see an imperfect person. And you know what that means? When you walk away from the mirror, don't forget who you were looking at because when you walk up to someone else, guess what you're seeing? An imperfect person. Nobody is perfect. People are going to let you down. People are, but that's the reason. See, that's the reason why I said as an individual, you got to be connected to Jesus. So that way when the body doesn't function perfectly, because we will not, when the body doesn't do everything the way you want it, because we are not always going to do it the way you want it or the way that it even should be done. As we grow things, you know, you watch, you watch a baby, right? You see how babies grow? Does a baby just pop out of the womb and just start running? <laughs> that, is, that is not what happens, is it? <laughs> be crazy, right? If something like that happened, like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We're going to have an exorcism here or something like that. A baby comes out, barely opens their eyes. You know, some children, everybody's excited. See how she opens her eyes. She's so attentive. Why? Because most babies don't open their eyes. So you get excited about stuff like that. Baby grabs your hand, right? You know, grabs your finger, and they have this grip. Wow, what a tight grip. Why? Because they're not supposed to have a grip like that. They're not supposed to be coordinated to be able to squeeze you in any way, shape, or form. It's the same thing with a church as it grows. And you know what? That baby grows, and then, you know, before you know it, they're standing. And as they're standing, you know, they begin to take that first step, second step. They begin to walk. Then they begin to run. And still, you know what happens? And this is amazing. Every parent here will be able to relate to this. Our children still lack certain coordination. That's why they have something called sippy cups. It should really be called, I don't want the liquid on the carpet cup. I don't want to constantly be cleaning up after my child cup. Hello, somebody. And here's the thing. You got to get this because some of us, when we were teenagers, we remember this too. For some reason, we just had those momental, you know, those, those momentary lapses in judgment. And we like reached across and push. Wish they had a sippy cup right now. Hello. And even as adults, come on, somebody. You're like, man, I don't even need to look at the cup. Oh, yes, you do. Watch your fall because you missed it. Hello. Spilling, just, just getting everybody soaked at the table, glory to God. Messed up everyone's food. Why is this important? Because this is how the church is, man. We grow, and you know what? Faith don't, we're like nine, you know, we're, go, we're going on nine years. And so, you know, we have some maturity, and we have some stuff. But, man, there are some times that we just knock stuff over. Hello. But you know what? You still need us. You still need your brother. Look at your brother and say, hey. Or your sister, say, hey. I need you. And say, and let me remind you. Come on, say it. And let me remind you. You need me. Hello, somebody. Glory to God. In order for us, in order for us 
to be the disciple-making church that we are called to be and that, that we go from the place of having good fruit, which we have, to bearing more fruit and to bearing much fruit. Let me just pause before I move forward because I don't want you to get it twisted. I will never, ever be concerned and consumed with numbers. That is not going to happen. But what I, do, what I do understand is that if we are bearing good fruit and we are being the way that God has called us to be, we will begin to bear more fruit. That means we will see people being saved as a result of our lives, amen, somebody. And also, we will not only bear more fruit, but we will bear much fruit. So we will go from the place that we are, which is being a church that has good fruit, right? Has good people that love Jesus, growing in grace, all that good stuff that we're supposed to do, to becoming a people who are bearing more fruit. And so we're growing, and then we begin to bear much fruit. And you know what happens when we start bearing much fruit? We start sending out churches. We start sending out people to go out and minister and be and, and begin churches in other cities and other states and other places for what? So that way the kingdom of God continues to be extended. Is it because we're trying to build a kingdom called Faith Dome? No. It is because we want to extend the kingdom of heaven and the earth. But that is what God has called the body of Christ to do is to be fruitful and multiply. And so it's not about numbers, but we need to be paying attention to that and see what am I doing to contribute to the overall work of what God is doing. And the only way that we are going to bear good fruit and we're going to bear more fruit and we're going to bear much fruit is by what Jesus said in, in, in the book of John chapter 15. We must abide in him. And abiding in him means that we are devoted to the gospel as the center of our lives. In our days... We hear a lot of stuff about kingdom living, kingdom mentality, and all of this stuff. But can I tell you something? The, the most forgotten principle of kingdom living is the very key, and that is gospel-centeredness. The most, the, the most forgotten thing, whenever I hear about people that start talking about different stuff, and you'll hear dominion theology, and all of these different things that are out there, and all of this stuff, you know what they miss? They miss that the gospel is central and must remain there if we are going to experience the power of the kingdom of God. And if there is one thing that I know that we must be committed to, it is having the gospel at the center of our lives. I want you to understand that the gospel is the breadth, it is the width, and it is the height of true Christianity. Without the gospel, Christianity is simply another religion. Without, without the gospel, the Bible is no more than just an optional code of conduct. And we, as the Apostle Paul says, are the most pitied of all people on the planet because of Jesus is our hope, there is no gospel, then you know what? We're pitied because he didn't exist. Understand this. The gospel is everything that we need. Everything, now hear me, everything that we do, everything that we do not do must have its basis within the gospel. It must have its basis in the gospel. And I want, I want to help you to get something. When I talk about the gospel, I am not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Whenever you start hearing the gospel, we automatically begin to correlate gospel. Well, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. That is not what I'm talking about. I want you to understand the gospel has been being preached since Abraham. Oh, glory to God. You keep reading in the book of Galatians, and it says that Abraham heard the gospel. 
Abraham heard the gospel. That's before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John existed. They weren't, listen, they in the plans of God, definitely thought of. But as far as anything else, they were nowhere near being existed. They, Jesus hadn't even walked this planet in his, in, in his flesh the way that he did in those gospels that we see. So when I'm talking about the gospel, I'm not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because that becomes our issue. We think about the gospel like, okay, well, you know, those are four books in the Bible. Three of them are synoptic, so they all go together. They all really tell, you know, the same basic details, the fourth one. So really, you're giving me like one big story in three different volumes, and then you're giving me one other story that gives me some other stuff. And so really, that's it. Bishop, you're telling me that it's just those, two, those, those, those four books of the Bible? No. Your entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is filled with the gospel. That's what God wants to communicate to us. It's that we miss it because we get sidetracked on other stuff when we need to be focused on who? Jesus. Looking for him. I love it. Years ago, Pastor Robert taught a class, and it was finding Jesus in every single book of the Old Testament. And he went through every single book of the Old Testament. He showed you how to find Christ in every single one of those books. Why did he do that? Because we have to be a people that are looking for him in everything. Not thinking, oh, I don't find Jesus until, until the book of Matthew. No. You find Jesus throughout your Bible looking for him. And that's what it means when I'm talking, that's what I mean when I'm talking about being gospel centered. When you look at the portion of scripture here in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul is speaking to the churches of Galatia. And when he says churches, this is the only book, and I just want to point this out just for reference, because you'll notice he said to the churches of Galatia, and, we, and whenever you hear us preach, we always talk about there was like a church of Philippi, there was a church of Ephesus, or there was a church here or a church there. What he, this is the only epistle that he's writing to multiple churches in one place because, because Galatia is not a city, it's a region. And so what he's doing is he's communicating to different churches in that region. He's sending one letter for all of these churches to hear. These are churches that he established like Derby and, and Iconium and Lystra, all of these places where he established churches, he's sending this letter to them and he's saying, listen, I need you to hear this. And so he communicates his letter after, the, after he goes and, and, you know, we're already like past. If you, if you look at it in your Bible, in the book of Acts, you'll be able to follow Paul's missionary ministry. And when he goes in, in, or apostolic ministry, whatever you want to call it, and as he goes on this mission and he's communicating and building these churches, there are certain things that occur. And so, you know, around 20-something years into the book of Acts is, when, is, when, is, is about the time that he's going to write this book. And he's communicating to them after he's established these churches. And a short time after, he's not even gone that long. Short time after, he's, he just preached the gospel fresh to them. And he goes and he tells them in verse 6, look at it with me. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Let's pause for a moment because I want you to realize that when you get sidetracked and you are not gospel-centered in your life, you are not leaving a message, you are not leaving a doctrine, you are leaving a person and that person is Jesus. It's not, that I'm, it's, it's not that I'm outgrowing the gospel. It's not that I'm outgrowing those, what we're talking, and I'm going to deal with this in a moment, those, you know, fundamental teachings. It's not that. It's, it's, it's not that you're doing that. It's when you get away from that, you're leaving Jesus. I didn't say that. The apostle Paul says that. He says clearly, he says, I, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Repeat this after me. Gospel-centered living must end where it begins. 
The Galatian churches, they had heard the gospel, were saved by the gospel, and quickly, and we don't know what quickly is. Quickly is, is, a, is just simply a short period of time. It could have been months. It could have been a year. It could have been a little longer, but it was a short period of time. It's kind of like when we hear that amazing message that really challenges us in the depth of our heart, and we walk out and we're like, man, I was changed by that message, and we go home, and by Wednesday, we're living the same way that we were We all, we, we, we've all heard those messages, right? Notice I said we. I know I'm the one preaching right now, but we have all heard those messages that we were so convicted, so challenged, and so changed, and yet we go home and then, you know, certain trials come, and, and we know that we heard the word of God. We know God was speaking to us. We know that God was dealing with our hearts. We know it. We know it. And you know what we said? Here's what we said. We said, you know, I'm not going to raise my hand because I don't have to do that. I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to live this thing out for Jesus. We've all done that. Hello, somebody. And here's what I want to tell you. Whether you raise your hand or not, that's not the question. Whether you came front or not, that is not the issue. Listen, when Jesus preached the gospel, you know what was the next thing those people saw and heard? He was like, repent, follow me. You know what the next thing they saw? His back. You heard the message? There's power in the message. Turn from your sin. Walk with me. That's it. That is it. It is about living for Christ. Listen, I would rather a hand never raised in this church again and that everybody would walk out of here every Sunday convicted, every Wednesday convicted of their sin and convicted that they can live this life empowered by the Spirit and that you all walked in the glory and grace of God. Because you know what? We would have no hands raised, but we would be turning our world upside down for Jesus. Now, and now in saying that, let me balance the statement out. I'm not saying don't raise your hand when someone does an altar call or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. If you choose to do that, that's on you. Because you know what? At the end of the day, it's not about how many altars you went to. It's about walking with Jesus. It's about walking with him. The Apostle Paul communicates to them and he says, listen, you know, you guys heard this gospel, were saved by this gospel, and quickly they began to depart from the true gospel looking for something else. Let me reemphasize this. There is nothing beyond the gospel. There is nothing greater than the gospel. There is nothing deeper than the gospel. The gospel is not some elementary entrance for sinners to be saved. And then once you come in through the door of salvation, you move beyond the gospel. That is not true. What happens is the gospel is what saves us. The gospel is what keeps us, and we must remain in the gospel. Nothing greater. But what happens to us is we forget about what this gospel message really communicates unto us. The gospel is the foundation and the apex of all Christianity. It's the lower level, and God's lower level is like up here, hallelujah, And it's the penthouse. It is everything. The higher you go, all you do is get a better view. That's all you do. You get a better view of the gospel. I've said this before and I will say it again. Anything, any revelation, any teaching, any prophecy, anything that does not lead you to a greater revelation of Jesus, be wary of it. If it doesn't point you back to him, be wary of it. Because everything should lead you to a greater understanding of who he is. The gospel is important because of what? Because the gospel grounds us in our faith. It guides us in our growth. It guards us from false teaching. And it guarantees us access into the kingdom of heaven. 
That is awesome. The gospel grounds us in our faith. Why are we saved? Why are you saved today if you are saved? Why is that? The gospel told you. As you grow in the grace of God, how do you you know you're growing the right way? Well, because when you look at the gospel and you see what it communicates to us, you know what it shows you? It shows you, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Now, you know what that is, right? That is like a promise from God. That's a declaration of God. And he's saying, look, you may not feel new right now, but you're a new creation in me. Amen. Hallelujah. He's saying, believe it. And so there's two things. And I said, I was talking to one of the young men. I don't, I don't, I don't see him here at this moment. But, um, you know, I, I was telling him that we'll, that we'll talk a little bit about two different things. And it's those things that are called imperatives. And, 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 and those are the things that we have to do, right? And then there's this other thing called indicatives. Indicatives. The Bible is filled with indicatives. You know what indicatives are? Those are the promises. Those are the declarations that God says. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. That's an indicative. God is indicating to you what he has done. He is communicating to you what has already been done. He is communicating to you the reality of who you are in him. And so that is the indicative. The imperatives are that you are supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. The indicatives are that you are supposed to honor your, or you're supposed to respect your husband and you're supposed to love your wife. Those are all indicatives. Those are things that we're supposed to do. But you know what we hear all the time? I'm going to tell you what we hear all the time. What we hear all the time is we hear those indicatives. And you want, and you want me to tell you why? Because we are, and I say we because I, and you know, I don't even say we. I'm going to say me because I'm the primary preacher in this place. I'll say me. I'll talk for me. Glory to God. I get afraid of communicating the indicatives because when you start communicating, this is what God says. This is what God says about you. People start forgetting about their responsibility if they take lightly what the indicative says. Because when you really, and th- this is what I'm talking about when we deal with gospel centrality in our lives. It is really understanding what Jesus has done and really understanding what he declares about you. What he says about you. You know why we have so many issues? I'm going to say it like this, and, and, and I use this, um, this, this quote from Pastor Tillian Checkin. I can't remember how to, how to pronounce his name. He has, like, the hardest name. It's, like, spelt crazy, and it doesn't even sound anything like it's spelled. It makes Quinones look like nothing. But anyway, he is the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in South Florida. And he said this in, in a blog that he wrote that I, that, that, that I read earlier this week. He said, sanctification is a secondary thing. He said, you cannot get secondary things without putting first things first. And you know, what, you know what's first? The gospel, Jesus, the indicatives. That's what's first. Oh, glory to God. What Jesus has said about us. And this is why Paul marveled. He's like, look, you're supposed to be growing, right? As, as, we grow in this, as we grow in our faith, as we grow because of what? Because the gospel shows us what we should be looking like. It shows us what we should be doing. The gospel also guards us from false teaching. When you are really a person who is really rooted and grounded in the gospel, when something false comes in, you want to know how you're going to know it? You're going to know it because it's not pointing you back to Jesus. I heard the stupidest that I read. I didn't hear. I heard. If I would have heard it, it would have been different. I read the stupidest quote I've ever heard in my life. And I want to say it, and, and, I, and, I, and I hope that everybody on the planet hears just this part of what I'm about to say. This was the quote. And I'm not going to say who quoted it because I'm just not going to be mean like that. 
But it was the dumbest quote ever. This is what made me like take a break from Facebook because I said, I can't deal with this stupidity. This is crazy. <laughs> Let me tell you the quote. Y'all want to hear the quote? Here's the quote. You can question a mentor, but you cannot question a father. So you know why y'all were like, that's crazy? Because y'all gospel-centered. Glory to God. Y'all love Jesus. And y'all have me preaching to you. But if you were sitting in one of these other crazy places, let me, let, let me quote it again for you so you can really get the gist of it. Because I had to read it like three. I was like, what on earth? But then when they showed me who said it, I was like, can't make this stuff up, boy. Glory to God. <laughs> you can question a mentor. In other words, here's, I, I want to I bring the context to you. The context is this. There are two types of people in your life as spiritual leaders. There is the spiritual father. Paul says, you've had many mentors, right? But I am your father. This is what Paul says. He gives a distinction. And so what happens is you have people that are spiritual leaders, whatever the case is, when they speak into your life, you can question them because they're mentors. But if I'm your spiritual father, you can't question me. That's what that is. That's a pope. That's why Martin Luther left the Catholic Church. And listen, if you're in the Catholic Church in here, I'm not saying anything except there's a reason why there was a reformation. But you know why people listen to that garbage? Because they're not gospelly trained. Gospelly. I know y'all going to use that word. That's a good one. Gospelly. I'm feeling that word. They're gospelly trained. <laughs> they, are not, they are not trained in the gospel. They're not trained in the truths of God that are found in the word. And so when people say that, you know what that, man, that's deep. That's not deep. That's stupid. Oh, that's profound. I'm just becoming a better Christian. You're becoming an idiot. Because you're being commun... Follow them blindly. You don't follow anybody blind. Jesus doesn't even say... Jesus, he opened the eyes of the blind so they could follow him. Glory to God. Y'all didn't get that. <laughs> Jesus is like, let me spit on the dirt. Let me clean. And let me put this up. Follow me now. You can see. Can you see? I see trees. Hold on a second. You can do the... You need to be able to see clearly. These people are like, no, let me put the dirt on your eyes, pull the wool over your eyes, and just follow me blindly. That is not Jesus. That is not Jesus. But you know what happens? When the gospel is not the center of your life, when emotionalism is, when feelings are, you hear stuff like that, and you're like, man, that's Bible, because you know what they did? They did something that is called proof texting. Say proof texting. How many of y'all know what proof texting is? Raise your hand if you know what it is. Raise it up loud and proud. If you do not know what proof texting is, raise your hand, please. I want to see how many people do not know what proof texting is. Come on, let's all, let's all be real. I didn't know what proof texting was until a couple weeks ago. I knew what it was. I just didn't know what it was called. So that's, that's a few of us, right? Proof texting is this. It's when you go on ahead and you look for proof <laughs> in the text <laughs> that has nothing to do with the context. So what happens is, I'll pull out something, just to stay on the point that I was at, so I'm on the same rabbit trail. 
I'll say, well, Jesus never questioned his father. Yeah, duh. You ain't Jesus and you ain't the heavenly father. Because in love, your bishop tried to help him out. I was like, look, man, I just want to let you know this is so off. This is crazy. Anyway, they quoted that. And I was like, you know what? This does not even deserve a response because I'm talking to a fool here. I haven't said no names because y'all don't know what I, you know, glory to God. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. You proof text. Oh, well, this says this here. This says this here. That proves my point. Really? The devil proof text on Adam and Eve. Hello, somebody. That's what he, that's what he did. He's like, oh, you won't surely die. <laughs> you're going to be like that. That was a proof text. You'll be like him. You're right. You're going to be like him, having knowledge of good and evil, which is going to cause him to have to separate from the tree of life, and now you will die. Hello. Proof text. So we do that. We get our doctrines across. And that's where more heresy comes than any place else. We get our point across. People think we're deep because we turn like to six different scriptures. Great job. Read all six of them in context and none of them have to do with each other. That's an issue. It helps us. It guards us. The gospel guards us from false teaching. When you're committed to the gospel, man, Jesus got your back. The Holy Spirit is with you. I'm not afraid, listen, I'm not afraid to hear someone preach something that's heretical. I just won't listen to it a second time. And I probably won't listen to them again, depending on who they are. If they're a person I can talk to and maybe they'll repent, we'll have a conversation. If it's a person that I have no chance of ever speaking to, guess what? I'll never listen to them again because they are a heretic, period. Until I hear about repentance, that's the bottom line. But I'm not afraid to hear somebody who speaks something negatively or something wrong. Why? Because I'm protected by the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Not like a demon's going to jump out of them into me. Hello? That's how we act. Like, oh, my goodness, heresy. Hold on a second. Communicate when you can, and when you can't, you just, then you say, okay, that's not, not good. It protects us. And then you know what? It guarantees us the gospel. Guarantees us access into the kingdom of heaven. Listen, y'all know where I stand. I believe that a person can backslide. Understand me. I believe wholeheartedly that the Bible teaches me of a person who was enlightened and turned away from it. Clearly, the Bible shows us that God is healing a backslidden heart of Israel. Shows us this clearly. But you want me to tell you something? This is what I do not believe. I do not believe that a person who is gospel-centered will ever turn away from Jesus. Understand what I'm saying? A person, you're really gospel-centered, you're really focused on Christ, then you're guaranteed access into heaven. Because what? My assurance, my security is not in me. It's in Christ. How can I focus on Jesus all my life and go to hell? Hello. It's not going to happen. Paul looks at this church and he says, I marvel. He's amazed. He's astonished. He's like, how are you turning away from the gospel so quickly? How are you turning away from the one who called you out of darkness? He goes on in verse 7. Look at it with me. He said, which is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Repeat this after me. The gospel-centered living is impossible if justification can be found elsewhere. 
Gospel-centered living is impossible if justification can be found elsewhere. I say that because you don't hear anything about justification here. But if you read the entire book of Galatians, what the book of Galatians communicates unto us and the main heart core message that the Apostle Paul is communicating to these churches is saying you cannot be justified by your obedience to the law. You cannot be justified because you are not good enough. You will never be good enough. There is no justification by you living perfectly according to the law because there were some people who are called Judaizers and what they were doing is they were trying to come into these people that were there into these churches where Paul had preached And they came in there behind Paul and they said, oh, yeah, we know Paul is a great preacher. And they earned the respect and they earned the, you know, the the camaraderie that comes with relationship. They sat down, listened to the people, talked to the people. And then before you know it, they said, listen, we got something a little bit more deep that we want to share with you. We, 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 we got something that we really need to bring you in on because, you know, you've been out there, you know, over there with freedom and all this and that. But I need to let you know, you need to be circumcised. Not only do you need to be circumcised, you can't eat no pork. Not only do you need to be circumcised and you can't eat no pork, you need to keep all the feast. Not only do you need to be circumcised, can't eat pork, you need to keep all the feast, but you got to worship on Saturday. What he did was, he, 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 he's telling them what they did. They came in and they said, yeah, Paul had a good message. But really what Jesus was doing, really what Jesus was communicating, really what Jesus was trying to bring you to understand was that he came to fulfill the law, so now you have to fulfill the law. Now listen to me. He was saying, he, he wasn't the issue. And I'm, I, I, I want to say this now, I, I want to say it later. But the issue for the Galatian churches was not their adherence to the law, but the reason for their desire to adhere. It wasn't that they wanted to obey the law. The book of Romans and the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, they both come together and they're they're like the greatest portrait of the doctrine of grace and justification that you will ever see. And And what happens is they communicate to us and they let us know clearly it's not about the the, you, you, you trying to fulfill the law. It's not about you obeying the law. If you're obeying the law because you've been saved, that's a good thing. You know what the Bible tells you in the book of Romans? It tells you clearly that you will be a person who will obey God's law as a result of the grace of God. Let me say it again. What happens is, you meet Jesus, and you know what you want to do? You want to obey him. It's, it's, it's a supernatural thing, but it becomes natural for you as a person. When you meet him, when you really understand what he's done for you, you want to please him, but you understand. And here is, here, here, here's where it gets really, really crazy. But you truly understand that no matter how good you are, no matter how many laws you comply with, you have never arrived at perfection in his presence. And even more importantly than that, no matter how much of the law you comply with, you are never good enough to come before him on your own. See, here's the thing. The gospel proclaims to us 
the most amazing. Self-severing, not serving, self-severing, pride-shattering, depression-destroying, and condemnation-counseling-canceling truth. And that is the doctrine of justification. Understand something. When you and I really get the doctrine of justification, we will never again walk around with our head down. Understand me. When we really get what Jesus did, it will change our lives dramatically. It's, listen, we self-severing because you start to realize, man, it is not about me. You start to understand, what, 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 what is doctrine of, of justification? Raise your hand again. Come on, raise it up high if you know what justification is. Come on, raise it up high. Glory to God. If you don't know what justification is or you're not sure, raise your hand. Come on, I, w- I want to see you. Not, not to embarrass anybody. Glory to God. Nobody, everybody know. Okay, I got a couple of people. Glory to God. I'm going to help you all out. Three, glory to God. Just, just pop it up just you know, so I can see. Just, yeah, I don't. Here's the thing. We, ju- we, we assume this doctrine in our preaching. But you know what Paul does continually throughout this, and we're going to look at this in the New Testament outside of Genesis, I mean outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul continues to remind them about their justification. He continues to remind them about what Jesus did. This is what justification is. And if you don't, and, and listen, I know Pastor Robert, he teaches in the, in, in the mentoring program, one class on salvation. Have you taught that class already in this go-around? Okay. And so in his class, he talks about this doctrine of justification. He talks about what Jesus did. We all know Jesus died for us on the cross. Say amen if you know that. We all know that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. Say amen if you know that. But what does that really mean to us in a practical manner? What, what, what does that really mean for us when we say Jesus died for us and we are justified? When the Bible speaks about you and I being justified, here's what it does. It has two parts of a meaning to it. And one of them is the forgiveness of sin. Say the forgiveness of sin. When the Bible says that I've been justified, it is saying that my sins have been forgiven. What does that mean? That means that I am no longer guilty before God's eyes, and that means that I am no longer in danger of the wrath of God. Understand something. When the Bible says I've been forgiven, what God is saying, you're no longer guilty before me. In other words, it's not like when someone does something wrong to you and you say, I forgive you, but you're waiting for them to mess up again. That's not justification. For you, that's protection. God doesn't need protection. Oh, glory to God. God doesn't say, okay, you confessed your sin and you spoke it to me, and so now I forgive you, but I don't know. No. God says, you are not guilty. You're not guilty. That's the first side of it. You are not in danger of wrath. If you've been justified, you don't need to fear going to hell. Why? Because his blood covers you. Hallelujah. This is what the Bible, this is is the indicative, glory to God. The gospel is the great, never-ending indicative. It is what Jesus did on the cross. So he says, clearly, you've been forgiven. The second thing, say this with me, the imputation... Of Christ's righteousness. The imputation of Christ's righteousness means that God allows you again all of the rights of a child. 
So here's what happens. In our, in, in our legal system, this is, I want to explain to you our legal system. Our legal system, you get arrested, you commit a felony, whatever the case may be. When you get arrested, you're going to go, you're going to do your time, you're going to come out. And when, when you come out after you've done your time, guess what? You, you are no longer a person who, you know, needs to suffer any more consequences. And you've paid your price and it's all good. You come out, but you know what you did? You lost all of your rights. Can't vote anymore? You have no rights because you are a convicted felon. So you're here, but because you experienced that, you lose your rights. Guess what else happens? Anybody who has ever talked to someone like this or anybody who has ever experienced this, if you have a record, you know what they do? They ask you on the applications, do you have this record, blah, 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 and whatever, and you're like, man, I want to lie because I really want this job or I really need this job. It's not because you want to be a liar. It's because, man, I know once they find out that I broke this law, I am not gonna, they're not going to give me this job. So you know what happens? You go ahead and you say yes, and you know what they say? Yeah, you did your time, you did what you had to do, but you're a convicted felon and we can't hire you. God isn't like that. <laughs> Glory to God. God is not like that. He doesn't say, okay, I forgive you, you're not guilty anymore, you don't have to worry about my wrath, but you're still this, 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 and this in my eyes. It's not what he says. That is not what he sees. When he justifies you, he says, I forgive you. You're no longer guilty. I deliver you from my wrath. And I also restore you to every right that every child of God has. That's why the Apostle Paul, who is our great example, he was a persecutor, he was a murderer, he was a blasphemer. He did all of this bad stuff, and that's why he says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but I am what I am because of the grace of God. He, said, I didn't, he says, I didn't walk with Jesus like the other 12. I didn't break bread with him in the Last Supper. I didn't go through any of those things. I didn't experience that. But you know what? He calls me the same way he calls them. Listen, justification is one of the most important doctrines ever. Because when we understand that we have been justified, here's the danger of this. And I want to say this very clearly. You can walk out of here and be like comforted and be like, oh, you know, I'm justified. Listen, if you're justified, you ain't going to be living like a heathen when you go out there. Hear what I just said. If you are truly justified, not because, listen, I, I want to say this, see, this way I get nervous, right? I, I'm like, I'm like leaning over here to the nervous side because I want to leave you with the justification just like, woo, I'm free. Hold on a second. You are free indeed, glory to God, and you are forgiven, and you are not guilty, and you are not in danger of wrath if you have made a commitment to Jesus. If you have openly, in your, and when I say openly, I don't mean in front of anybody. I mean you have openly confessed him as Lord, confessed him as Savior, and you are walking with him. That is a sign of your justification in this earth. So don't think that you're going to walk out of here and be like, well, Bishop said I'm not guilty. Bishop said I'm not in danger of wrath, and Bishop said that I am a child of God. Hold on a second. The Bible talks about those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. Hello. And it's important that you understand this doctrine is important for us as Christians, as those who have truly committed our lives to Jesus. 
And the only people who will take this doctrine, and this is where the whole, you know, once saved, always saved people get, oh, well, you know, that you can't teach that, that, that doctrine because then people just live how they want to live. You want to know who lives how they want to live? And I'm going to say this, and, and you know what? Someone's going to hate me because I'm going to say it, but someone else is going to love me. If you're a true Calvinist, and what I mean by this, if you are really a Calvinist, man, you don't believe that way. Because if you are a true Calvinist, you want to know what you believe in, and I'm just throw this out there, just in case you don't know. Calvinists are many of them, two different positions on pre on predestination and salvation, all this good stuff. The bottom line is this: if you are truly a Calvinist, they really believe that scripture where Jesus says, He who endures to the end will be saved. Because you know what they say about everybody else, whoever backslides, they were never truly Christians. So if you are really a Calvinist, you are gonna walk in more holiness than anybody else you know. Because you are constantly working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you know that you are not saved by your own merit. You are not saved by your own works. You are not saved by your own righteousness. But you are saved by a finished work on the cross. And nothing you can do can add to it. Nothing you can do can take away from it. The only thing you can do is revel in it and thank God for what he did. That is what justification is. It is to help everyone in here to understand, man, you, you, you cannot do anything to make yourself better in God's presence. See, here's, here, 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 here's the thing. In our day and age, the same way that the Galatian church has this, so we have it. The Galatian church, they had somebody preaching a different gospel to them. Not that there was really a different gospel. Let me help you to understand this. And Paul is not saying this. That, that when you look up these words and you understand them, he's not saying that there's a different gospel. He's saying there's, there, there's a message over here that they're calling a gospel. It's not really the gospel. It's not really good news. Listen to me. If someone comes and tells you, you can earn your salvation by doing good works, that is a horrible story. Why is that? Well, number one, because your Bible says that no one will be justified by the works of the law. But let me tell you the other reason why. How do you know when you've done enough good works to be justified? How do you know? How, how, how do you know, okay, well, I've done enough. You know what's the saddest thing? Is that we have Christians that they believe like that. Well, I've done enough. Really? Paul never say that. I always look, you know, I, I always like, you know, myself, I always look for like, man, one day I'm going to retire. But then I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to retire? can't retire being a Christian. I'm going to sit down and watch these young bucks get up there and start preaching. Be like, hold up, son. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Hold up. I'm at a place where I've forgotten more Bible than you remember right now. And I need you to understand you got that one messed up, man. Let me, let, let, let me help your church out right quick. Glory to God. <laughs> Listen, the reality is we miss what God is trying to communicate to us and trying to show us. We have this one gospel. There is one true gospel. And it's the gospel that we hear in the word of God, that we hear preach, that we can do nothing to add to this. But in our day, I want to tell you that there are two messages that are prevalent. And they are waging a war for our soul. And it's, and, and it's personal or self-justification. And it comes in two ways. One way is this. It is either by carnal indulgence or the other one is moral purity. Those are the two messages that we hear. One of them is carnal indulgence. And what that one is, that is the humanist mindset, which is, you know what? And this is where, this is where it goes, especially if you're like a spiritual humanist. You have a, you have a, you have a religion called pantheism. I mean, I don't know what pantheism is. I'm glad I'm throwing out some words there, glory to God. Only Pastor Chad knows that. Put your hand down, man. 
Pantheism. You ever talk to someone and they're just like, God is in everything. God is everywhere. God is in me. God is in you. That's pantheism. So I do good to you. I do right because I'm really doing right to me. It's not about you. It's not about God. It's really about me. And so that message says, that's the message that communicates, if it feels good, it must be good. And here's the thing. This is your justification. Since you are really God and God really lives inside of you, why would you have these feelings if they weren't good? Why would you have these desires if they weren't good? That's pantheism. And that message wages war for our hearts. Wants us in the church. There's all kinds of stuff. You guys, I'm not even going to get into it because I still got about another hour to go. Um, But on Wednesday nights, (laughs) but on Wednesday nights, when I'm talking about a biblical worldview, for those of you who really care to know, Listen, you come and you'll hear about the right mindset, the right biblical mindset, and the things that are opposed to that. I know some of you are with Pastor Robert in his class, and I applaud you for being committed to that. But for the rest of you that are doing whatever you're doing, I encourage you to be in church so you can hear more and you can learn more about what a biblical worldview is supposed to be and how we're supposed to have the right mindset and how we're supposed to think the thoughts of God in areas of our lives and not give in to this pantheistic mindset where it is, you know what, I'm God, Everything's God, everything is good, and everything that I feel is good, and whatever I want, no, that is the devil. That is not God. But that wages war. And so I'm justified by what? Man, if I, and this is, this is where you get, and understand this, this is where you get the, argue, the argument for homosexual and lesbian relationships. That's the argument. The argument is love is love. It doesn't matter who I love. There's a violation to the laws of God and to what God's standards are. And so you're supposed to love someone, right? You're supposed to have love, and it doesn't matter what sex it is, but there is a certain kind of love that is limited to certain relationships. But that's that mindset. And so you know what? That's my justification. I have these feelings. I have these desires. You know, I've been in church because here's what happens. And let's break it down and make it really really clear. I've been in church all my life. I've prayed. I've asked God to take these desires from me. I still have them, so God must want me to do this. Hmm. The second one, and this is the one that a lot of us fall into. Remember, we're finding justification in ourselves, and it is in moral purity. We become moralists like Paul. And so what we do is this. And I can can give you a real easy test for you to know if you're a moralist or if you really embrace the doctrine of justification. This is a real simple test. When you sin and you do something wrong, when and how do you come into the presence of God again? Do you come back into God's presence after you feel like you've done enough good stuff? Or do you come back into God's presence when you feel you haven't, or, or you stopped doing whatever sin it was long enough for God to accept you? If that's the way you do it, That's being a moralist. Because what you are saying, I got to earn to get back into God's presence. The Bible never says that. What do you mean, Bishop? I should just stay. I should just jump into God's presence? No, you should stop sinning. That's what I'm saying. I'm not telling you to be a hypocrite. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is 
There is one thing. And you see, and, and I, and I say me, the reason why I told you that story so easily is because that's me. Bishop, you're a moralist? Yes. Anyone who loves Jesus borders on that. Why? Because you don't want to offend him. You don't want to dishonor him. You don't want to disgrace him. You don't want to be a hypocrite. So you feel you need to do some kind of penance before you can come into his presence again. Hold on a second. Jesus was beaten so that way you could enter into the presence of God. It doesn't mean that you just go around just playing around. Oh, well, I sinned. I can just come back. No. It means that you understand that nothing that you do is going to earn God's acceptance. No matter how long you do not sin. No matter how many good things you do. That doesn't make you more acceptable to God. You can do nothing to make God like you more, love you more. He loves you because of what he has done, and that is it. And when he looks at you, he doesn't even see you. He sees Jesus. It's not about us. That's what justification says. But in the church, we are filled with moralists. People who have, listen, we have conversations. I've preached this before. You know, when, when you're a Christian, you shouldn't be looking at the Bible and saying, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that, so I'm going to do it. Hold on a second. Why are you even questioning it then? Well, it's not sin, so what do you do? You're a moralist. You want to see how close to the line you can get before you sin because in your mind you're justified. As long as the Bible says thou shalt not chew gum in church, then I won't chew gum in church. But since it doesn't say that, I'm going to chew gum in church. Am I saying chewing gum in church is a sin? No. The sin is spitting your gum out in the parking lot on the floor. That is sin. <laughs> Why is that sin? You think, do you think that people walk into church and throw gum on the floor? No, that's not how gum ends up on the carpet. Gum ends up on the carpet because you get out of your car... What do you think happened to the gum? It's going to sit there on the floor and some worshiper of the Lord is going to come by in a godly way and they're just going to hop on it. I just want to go worship the Lord. And then they're going to come in church and they're going to get their Holy Ghost grind on, glory to God. And before you know it, we have this stain in the carpet. just want to throw that in there, all right? But we're moralists, and we truly, truly depend on our own righteousness above the righteousness of Jesus. We truly think, okay, I have enough laws. So here's what happens. Well, bishop says, I need to be in prayer at 9 o'clock. I'm there at 9 o'clock in prayer. Bishop says we need to start church or, 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 the, or the times of, of church programming say we need to be here at 1030. I'm here at 1030. Bishop is always talking about coming on Wednesday nights. So you know what I do? I come to Wednesday nights. And so what I do is I have my moral checklist. Bishop, pastors, they're saying we need to pray more. So I'm praying more. Bishop, pastors saying we need to read our Bible. We're reading our Bible more. Bishop, pastors say we need to memorize. We're memorizing scripture. Bishop, pastors said we need to have family devotional. Having family devotional. Listen. You can do all of that and still go to hell. All of that stuff does not justify you. All of that stuff, here's what I want you to get, is that none of those things make you right before God. None of them make you right before God. 
But being right before God should make you do all of them. None of those things. So we measure. Oh, I give this much. I do this much. You're a moralist. And you need to repent because you are not depending on the righteousness of Christ. You're depending on your own righteousness. And the reason why I say you need to repent is not because I get something out of it. It is because if you don't repent, you will go before him and he will say to you, part from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Understand me. This is what happens when I depend on my own righteousness. See, God is beyond pure. God is beyond holy. I already broke it down when I talked about Isaiah. God is righteous. Sin is nowhere near him. We can never, never equate to his righteousness. The third thing I need you to repeat after me, please, is this. Say, gospel-centered living is clearly expressed by the answer to the question, why? When you look at the Apostle Paul, and look at verse 10 with me, he goes on to say this. I was going to read from verse 8 because we didn't read that. But, but he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And we have said before, or as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He's making it emphatically clear. He's saying there is one gospel, and if someone comes to you and says there is another way to be saved, if you start to feel like I can be justified by my own actions, if you start to sense certain things that are not according to the scripture, those things are cursed. And anybody, listen to me, anybody who comes to you, with that kind of gospel, Paul says, let them be accursed. In other words, don't hang out with them. Don't tolerate them. Don't, don't pacify them. Communicate the truth to them. Help bring them to salvation. And if they don't want to be converted, that's on them. In verse 10, he says this. For do I now persuade men or God? In another translation, he says, am I seeking the favor of men or God? Who am I, who, whose favor am I seeking? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There's something that you need to understand clearly. Two things mark the life of the person who truly gets the doctrine of grace. Two things. You can write these down. The first thing is full confidence in the finished work of Christ on the cross. The second thing is complete devotion to the continued work of Christ in the earth. Two things mark the life of the person who truly gets the doctrine of grace. One, full confidence in the finished work of the cross. Number two, complete devotion to the continued work of Christ in the earth. The Apostle Paul, in the latter part of this, in, in, in the latter part of the book of Galatians, in the last chapter, he says that he will boast in nothing else except the cross of Christ. He has no place to boast. No matter what he's done, no matter how many works he's accomplished, no matter how many churches he's established, no matter how many messages he's preached, no matter how much stuff he has done, he is continually committed and devoted to that work, and he boasts not in that. He boasts in the cross of Christ. He understands that it is Christ. 
It is Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, and he talks about how, the, how, how, how he had done more works than all the rest of the apostles, he says, but it is not me. It is the grace of God that is operating in me. The apostle Paul was 100% confident in what Christ had done on the cross. He wasn't worried about anything else. He wasn't worried about pleasing man. He was worried about pleasing God. And what do I mean by that? Bishop, you just said that I can't do anything that is going to impress God. That's right. But when you obey him, that is pleasing to him. That doesn't earn you favor. That simply pleases him. This is what we don't get. We want to serve God for everything that we get. We need to understand we serve him because of what we already have. You hear pastors, pastors preach or people preach or, or pray, and they'll say, God, if you never do anything else for us, you've already done enough. Listen, that's a good heart. Not to say that every prayer is like that because I've been with those same pastors, those same men, and I've heard them ask God to do other things. The point of the matter is that we understand, man, we got it all. We have everything. That's what gospel-centered living is. It is understanding fully that what Jesus did, you could never do for yourself. And because of that knowledge, you will be like the Apostle Paul. And as he says in the end of this verse, he said, For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant. A bondservant was a servant who owed somebody something. It was someone who was committed, who was bound to their service until they paid a debt. That is what, that, that, that's what a bondservant was. He, was, he, he understood that his debt was already paid. He didn't, he, he, didn't, he didn't owe God anything except total dependence, total devotion. And God is saying, listen, I've already given you the grace to do it, so live it out. Two things will mark our lives. The doctrine of grace, and I'm getting ready to close now. The doctrine of grace has been distorted. And that's what these people wanted to do in the beginning of the, of the text. We see that he says in verse 7, he says, Which is not another, speaking of the gospel, but there are some who trouble you. That word trouble, it literally means to shake back and forth and want to pervert. That word pervert means to literally turn around the gospel of Christ. And so what happens is there are those who want to pervert. There are those who want to turn around this gospel and make it not be what it is. But the, but the doctrine of grace has been distorted or been perverted when these two components are not existing. When I am a person who is overly confident that Christ is with me, that God is with me, that God is for me, but I have no burden to obey him, I have no burden to serve him, I have no burden to walk with him, you've missed it. And if I am the other person, who is burdened because I have to serve God. I'm the other person. I'm burdened because I have to do all of these things on this checklist in order to please God. I'm burdened by all of that. But I'm not consumed by what he's already done. You know what's happening most of the time? I'm trying to earn my own salvation. I'm trying to do enough good works to gain his approval. It's important for us to understand the gospel must remain the center. The more that we revel, the more that we glory in the accomplished work of Christ, the more consumed we become with his overwhelming, unmerited, everlasting love, which in turn produces a deeper devotion to obedience, period.
the more that I sit down and I read the gospel throughout the Bible, the more that I sit down and I consider how wretched I am and how he saved me, the more that I sit down and I begin to understand that, man, I did nothing to deserve what I have. That is the problem with us, is that we sit around and we feel like we deserve something. Understand this with me, please. We deserve nothing. I don't care how good of a husband you are. I don't care how good of a wife you are. I don't care how good of a student you are. I do not care how good of a Christian you consider yourself to be. You still deserve hell. Every one of us, that is what we deserve. Period. He didn't call you because you were cute. He didn't call you because, oh, you have a beautiful voice and I need to add you to the worship team. He didn't call you, oh, because you're talented and you can do sound or you can do, you know, media and stuff like that. That isn't why he called you. We add nothing to him. He adds everything to us. You deserve nothing. It doesn't matter how big or how small your paycheck is. How big or small your house is. Everything that we have is because of his grace. And the more that we revel in that, the more that we become, we become amazed at how undeserving we are, the more that that happens, you know what turns on inside of us? Man, I, I got to serve him. I don't have to serve him. My serving him doesn't add anything to him. Your serving adds things to me. Your serving adds things to your brothers and sisters in Christ for sure. But you don't have anything to Jesus. Same young man that I was talking to, I told him, I said, you know, everything has to come back to Christ. And the problem is we don't live gospel-centered. And so what happens in our lives is that we get caught up in other things, not coming back to Jesus. We get caught up when folks offend us and we get stuck over here because we didn't come back to Jesus. We get caught up when people let us down because of what? Because we didn't come back to Jesus. We can't forgive people because we didn't come back to Jesus. We can't walk in the blessing in our marriages, in our homes because we get caught up in something that happened years ago, months ago, or minutes ago because we didn't come back to Jesus. Listen, when we come back to him, we continue to do it. We continue to do what he's called us to do. We continue to obey where he's called us to obey. I close with this quote from Paul Washer. He said, the gospel message, it is the message of our salvation. It is the means of our sanctification. And it is the source of every right motivation for the Christian life. I'll say it again. The gospel is the message of our salvation. It is the means of our sanctification, and it is the source of every right motivation for the Christian life. If there's any other motivation than what Jesus did, it's wrong. Let's all stand to our feet. Father, we humble ourselves before you today. And God, we are so very grateful. I'm grateful, God, for what you spoke.